Hi there. What's up? I'm Ola, an inhabitant of Lightbulb Moments, aka marketing director, a happy aunt, and an utter nerd. I'm Chris, a designer, a creative tech enthusiast, and a semi-grown kid. This is the Renting Bananas podcast, where Chris and I explore the depths of the human condition, covering everything from sex to relationships to mental health and how to stop spending money on things you don't need and everything nomad life. Join us on this audio journey as we ask more questions than we can actually answer. Welcome back, everyone, to uh, another episode of Ranting Bananas. This week, we're going to be talking about sex. So this is part of the Sexy Brain series. Before we jump in, let's just take a moment and first talk about why sex is even part of our podcast. In an internet world fueled with sexual content around every digital corner, we've got over-sexualized photos on social media, Snapchats of dick pics and nudes. We've got Tinder, Grinder, you name it. So we seem to be more and more flooded with sexual content, but less and less able to really comprehend sexuality and what it even means. So this episode, among many others to come in the series of Sexy Brains, aims to understand different topics about sex, relationships, and how we approach sexuality. And as we try to do it with our money episodes in terms of reaching financial freedom. My hope here, without even consulting Chris, is that we take this journey to to understanding sexual freedom or what Esther Perel calls erotic intelligence and trying to truly crack the 21st century's complicated relationship with sex. So basically, is it for all you horny motherfuckers out there? <laughs> this is what the episode is for. Anybody who's at work and nursing a semi or something, you can listen to this and this will get you off. Maybe. Or maybe not. (laughs) Maybe further from the semi. (laughs) I I took a lot of time prepping this podcast because I think I'm one of those people that's very much obsessed with the subject of sex. And I think when Chris and I were going through the topics of uh, what to talk about, sex was one of the ones that I was like, we have to do it. And I think you agreed right away as well. Yeah, it's such a good topic to speak about. It's on everybody's mind all the time, at least if you're like me. And it's, yeah, a fascinating subject. It's weird and wonderful. And a lot of people don't, or they're not as open to it as they should be. Especially in this part of the world, in Southeast Asia, I don't think it's in education and people are just weirded out by it. Yeah, it's a great topic. So before we jump into all that, let's like rewind. Let's look at history of human sexuality. And it's as long as human history itself, right? Because it's about 200,000 years old. Chris is making a profane movement with his fingers and fist. But for for as long as we have been having sex, we have been creating art, writing and talking about it. So there's like this very long record of sex itself. And I'm just, like I said, I'm really obsessed about it. And it's not just about sex. It's not just about thinking about it, but it's also because it's so fascinating because normally animals, most animals, do not really have sex for pleasure. But when it comes to like humans, pigs, bonobos, and maybe dolphins and one or two other species of primates, those are like the only species that do enjoy having sex for the heck of it, which is just like, why? Why do we do that? And anyway, there was this really 
cool episode that I watched. I don't know if you've seen it, uh, Chris. It's a documentary called Sex. Chris, you better put this online, what you're showing here. <laughs> He's drawing pictures of, of penises right now. Or is it penis? This is the ancient <laughs> art of drawing penises. This is what happens when you give people pen and paper. This is what comes out. Anyway, I was talking about a documentary that's called Sex and Love Around the World with this brilliant woman. She's a reporter, Christiana Mampour. It's on Netflix. You should see it. Everyone should see it. It's a really good documentary. And so she goes to Japan because Japan is obviously such a huge subject, right, when it comes to sex. And I think we might need like a whole separate episode to dive into this one. Question, why is Japan sexual? Just quickly. Like, why is Japan mm -hmm. obsessed with sex and why are we obsessed with Japan sex? Or Japanese sex? So very interesting because this is what I'm going to talk about. Exactly. Because Japan's like history with sex goes way back. So Christiane Amanpour, she actually goes and explores the history of it in Japan as well as what it's like now. And she stumbles upon these sex scrolls, which are called shunga. Exactly like your little picture there, Chris. So oh, little. Thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> So the Japanese influences of Shunga, like they date back all the way to the Heian period, which started in the year 794. This is a long time ago. And they're essentially like these scrolls that are instructions on how to have sex for pleasure, which is, I, I think they might be like some of the oldest depictions of sex. Maybe Kama Sutra was at around the same time. We'll have to check this. And yeah, and put this information here. Like the history of Japan and sex for pleasure is as long as Oma days. And so imagine these, these sex scrolls basically show how to touch yourself or like how to do it with your partner. And there's even this one that's called Beyond the Wall, which is basically an extra super old painting of a glory hole. <laughs> which I love, but it's absolutely fascinating. So anyway, like the sexual freedom in Japan ends with the arrival of Christianity. That's what we learned in that episode. And sex becomes not only taboo, but also something sinful. And then you mm. get to where Japan is today, which is this completely, it's struggling with an aging population problem and, and not enough couples are choosing to reproduce or even have sex. But again, we'll dive into that. So I think... I think that's why Japan is so fascinating because it's so polar opposite. You've got, on one hand, you've got all of this sexual history, which then translated itself into hentai. You know, like you've got people on public transport reading hentai, like it's just any other comic book. And then you've got this problem with people reproducing and people not even going on dates and having government schemes to make, to encourage people to even date. So I think that's why Japan is, is such a thrilling subject. Yeah, and if I go to Japan, I'll be fucking. So maybe I could help the population growth there? Okay. Wow. All right, let's okay. move on. Beep. <laughs> that, it's interesting you bring that up because actually in Japan, they're encouraging a lot of like Western or foreign people to come exactly for that reason. So one of the things, again, we will have to do a separate episode on this, but just quickly, one of the things that people struggle with in Japan is that men are super shy, like Japanese men are getting shyer and shyer, and Japanese women are getting bolder and bolder. Why are you shaking? Okay, so contrary to the belief, right? Mm. I, I went for my 30th birthday to Japan, 
and we would go out and we thought, oh yeah, Japanese men are shy, so this is going to be easy. But contrary to popular belief, a guy we met who worked at Microsoft over there was mm-hmm. telling us like, like we asked him like, okay, so we went out, but we saw these like Japanese men being really forward, like literally speaking mm. to everybody and like grabbing girls left, right and center. And the girls seemed to not mind it. You know, it wasn't like aggressive, but he said that because the society is so repressed that when people go out and they get drunk, they get more loose. But also Japanese women like someone really forward. So the Mm. only way to really pull when you're in Japanese society and you're going out is that you're aggressive or not aggressive, Mm. more like forward and maybe more aggressive than what Western culture is like, you know, when you're dancing on the dance floor and you're just giving each other looks. But what I experienced, me and my friend Steve, was that basically every Japanese guy in the nightclub will basically Mm. do their rounds on all the women that they find attractive and really forward. And we were like, this is so opposite to what we thought. And we were like, we can't do this. We're not confident enough. We just didn't know the nomenclature as well. So we were really confused but that was really interesting so I'm not sure if that's true or not I don't know just being on the ground it was weird yeah so I think why I said that was that so I was reading about basically the dynamic between Japanese men and women this is so turning into a Japanese episode and essentially what what, uh, they were saying is because in Japan the the man was always the breadwinner all the way from back in the day, being a samurai, that culture of where the woman is uh, at home and takes care of the household, and then the man goes out and and brings the bacon home. So I think when that shift started happening, with obviously amazing education, women going to work, and women being extremely hardworking, and also breaking out of the oppression of not having had that equality before, and you're seeing that shift where women can now do everything, they started to not really want to get into relationships because like why would they give up their freedom why would they become this and for the men it was really hard to understand why these women would not like why would they not need them and I think that was really hard for them psychologically to be put in a place where suddenly they have to change almost their DNA right this is cultural DNA that changes and then women exploring more in sex, women being more outward, women not being the shy, typical Japanese girl from before, all of that somehow led to Japanese men preferring having pillows as girlfriends. But we we shall come back to this. So I think this is an excellent debate. And I feel like we should drag some of our Japanese friends into this and ask them. Anyway, speaking of Japan and just like Asia, I would love to to jump in and talk about the general approach to sex in Asia. And you had mentioned education just before. That's a good place to start because growing up, what was it like really to to be Asian and then to learn about sex at home and then at school? I guess we were both not educated in Asia, but but how did our parents educate us? Yeah, well, the simple answer is they didn't. They never spoke about it. Did I ever walk in on my parents? Probably not. So that was good. So I didn't get the live preview. So yeah, they never spoke about it. At school, of course, we learn about it as teenagers. You're like giggling because you have to put the fucking condom on the fucking cucumber or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you basically learn it through media. Like I've definitely found my dad's standard Playboy magazines. I remember it was such a thing that in, when you go into the woods, 
you also find random porn mags there because that was like before internet porn and stuff. So that's where you would typically not even learn about it, but be exposed to it. And of course, as you grow older, and I remember this, like me and my friend or me and a bunch of friends would go into his shed and it was like a shed where like they had sofas and stuff like that. So we would like sleep over, whatever, be super high, but then put on a porno tape and just watch porn together. And it was just like super weird. And that's what like guys did back in the day. Now you wouldn't be caught watching porn with your mates. That's just that's, not a thing that people do these days. That's but. so weird. That's that. I'm, but interesting, right? Like how in a way necessity forced you guys to do that because you all wanted to do it and there was probably not that much access so you all got together to do it together oh no it was complete novelty it was like oh shit we got porn and then like you just put on this tape and it's like really shitty quality right it's three 360p or whatever it is mm-hmm. back in the day in a vhs and it's like old school bushes everywhere like hairy motherfuckers and it wasn't pleasurable, but it was just like, oh, we're guys or whatever. Uh, we watch porn together. And yeah, education started from TV, like shows like the Se- Sex in the City was, yeah. a, was a great one I watched when I was a kid. And you just learn by the media first and then, of course, exploring with your first. But there was pretty much zero education. I think we're quite lucky, actually, to be exposed in that world. But I don't think like Asian culture really puts emphasis or even highlights it as something important of course marketing does sell sex but i think it's super different but kids that i've spoken to in this part of the world and people i've spoken to in this part of the world typically don't get educated in it Mm -hmm. so they don't really know like stds it's seen as holy fuck like all stds can kill you and Mm -hmm. it's more like repressed and but when they come out, of course, that's that's another thing. They just go all out. So there's it's difficult, I think. Yeah, it's really interesting. I also, I, I, I never got the birds and bees talks, right? Like my parents never talked to me about it. I also, it was in school and it was a tape that they had played us with uh, a rubber ducky in a bath with a man and a woman. And then it like the ducky dove into the bathtub and it would show like the male and female parts and all that so you never really got even for for that was in a polish school so i was in primary in a polish school so even polish schools had been quite conservative about that stuff because obviously poland is super religious but with my vietnamese parents you never got that you never got the hey how to protect yourself all that like the only stuff you would hear was what my dad when i was 24 he pulled me aside and he was like, a girl has this thing that if she loses it, things are just not the same afterwards. And I was like, wow, this is a little too little and a little too late. <laughs> but, you know, like I think he was I, and I think it must have been such an awkward moment for him as well, because I'm sure he didn't get a talk from his parents. So he also didn't know how to approach that. But, yeah, I mean, you don't get that. And I think part of what you were saying about the educational system in Asia. I don't know if you know about this statistic, actually, but it's in Vietnam, there's 120 abortions for every 100 women. Holy fuck. Really? Oh, yeah. my God. It's a, it's an insane statistic because people don't know. You have this in Vietnam, you've got this massive population and sure, a lot of people live in the bigger cities, so maybe they'll get more exposure to that. But most of the people live in between, right? 
the north and the south in between Hanoi and Saigon. And even if there's like Da Nang in the middle or whatever, most of the people live in the countryside. They they don't get that education. They don't know. And so people get pregnant and they either have to either do a shotgun wedding, which happens loads in Vietnam as well. And then they have kids and then they get divorced at a very early age. Divorce rates are also like 50% uh, or higher in Vietnam. So it's either that or they go and get an abortion. So I think the problem with lack of sexual education is not just that people don't know how to have sex. What we're talking about is a very privileged place of talking about sexuality because people don't even get to learn about safety or how to have not have an unwanted pregnancy. Hmm. So those are basics that people don't even get covered in Asia. Yeah, so I was dating this girl. Mm-hmm. She told me that she had an abortion and that she got really depressed and started like becoming an alcoholic. Right, the, the way that this girl drinks is absolutely mm-hmm. crazy. Like drinking all day, all night, not going to school and just being really depressed for a year. And then she managed to get herself out of it, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. It all spurred from the abortion. And I wonder that if there was some education around it when she was younger, educated in Thailand, that she would be like, oh, it's just one of these decisions I have to make. Of course, it's sad, but be be able to come to terms with it quicker and not turning to something like alcohol or any other drugs because it's, it's a thing that happens and unfortunately it's it's a decision that you've made but not being like oh no this is like the worst thing that's ever happened to me and losing control of yourself I think that might have something to do with why she felt like that and also like culture in this part of the world is if you have an abortion people look down on you so you're never supposed to tell anybody and there's this overwhelming shame it's like mm-hmm. oh my god i'm this disgusting person or whatever it is and that's just not true because it's your body you get to do whatever you want to it and it's just like psychologically that's definitely had some effect on her just because the lack of education or the lack of acceptance for abortions and stuff like that. I definitely agree with with some of the stuff that you just said. I, I do think that abortions are a very personal subject for everyone and everyone goes through it in a different way. But that said, I definitely think there's an aspect of shame in an Asian culture. I definitely think there's an aspect of feeling like you can't talk about it, that it's not really normalized. But I think what people would find if they had spoken to to their families is that probably someone in their family had already done it, probably more than one person. Probably there there has been miscarriages as well. Like those subjects are okay to talk about. And I think what they would find is that there's probably more support than shame that they might come across. Obviously it depends on family, but I think the general stigma around it in Asia is quite a hard thing to deal with because there's already so much pressure on a daily basis that you get in Asia with trying to be perfect, with trying to be the best, with not ruining the family name, with saving face is the phrase that they always say. And so I can 100% understand that. And also when you go through something so tough and you're alone, I think... I can see why she would get depressed, right? Because you're in such a low place. And even if, let's say, you were educated that it is okay, that it is normal, that people go through it, you can't really control how you're going to feel in that moment because you might still feel like, you might feel guilty about doing it. You might feel like, maybe I did something unnatural. And maybe deep inside, oh, this is what I wanted and this is right. You might still feel all those things, which then without being able to 
talk with anyone else and getting the support you would get really depressed yeah man i feel really bad for her and that she was not in a situation where she felt she could talk to someone yeah it's terrible we took a very dark turn in a way uh, in our conversation uh but important i think it was an important uh, thing to bring up because i don't think we can talk about sex and pleasure without really touching upon what's lacking right now in the world in people being to achieve this sexual pleasure but an interesting statistic that i had found an old statistic from like 1980s, 1990s, but I think that kind of reflects on our parents, is talking about, the, the study talks about variations in sexual behavior between Asian and non-Asian university students. So they compare students from Hong Kong with students from U.S. colleges. And basically in the U.S., in the 80s and 90s, when they did uh, this research, 85% of U.S. college students claim to have been engaging in premarital sexual intercourse, whereas only 27% of men in Hong Kong and 19% of women in Hong Kong were admitting to engaging in premarital intercourse. So that's a huge gap right there. And I wonder, does it have anything to do with education on safe sex? Or does it have it obviously has to do with culture and how if you're engaging in sexual intercourse, you should probably marry this person? Yeah, also, they could be lying out their teeth, right? Like not like not being comfortable enough 100%. to be like, yo, I'm fucking, I'll be fucking. But they're just like, no, I, I can't tell no one because it means I'm a bad person or my family will get judged or whatever it is. Yeah, I, I don't really know what it is. Also, I forgot the question. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and so we were talking about the statistics for marital sex and you said they could be uh, 100% lying. That's what you were saying, right? So... I think uh, there's a lot of people that do it and don't talk about it. You even see this with uh, on Tinder. People don't like to show their face, but they're like friends with benefits. And you're mm -hmm. like, obviously, there's an element of shame because if you don't want to show your face. And actually, this is also true in Japan. If you go on Tinder in Japan, majority of people don't show their faces. Wow. And it's, yeah, they cover like bits of it and they're like very mysterious because they don't want to be like recognized to be playful or whatever right whatever the the stereotype is for women on tinder in japan is but i think there is that expectation yeah sometimes it's for some reason in asia it's still a thing to be married and a virgin I, i've still heard mm -hmm. that and that kind of confuses me why would you want to marry someone that's going to be absolutely terrible at sex and had no practice and it's just not pleasurable and then mm -hmm. this whole, because the same expectation isn't true for a guy right like they typically have sex pretty early even in asia i think uh, they're just like naughty dogs but for women it's completely different and there, there are surgeries out there that women can get i don't know what it's called but vaginal you know, rejuvenation uh, boom there it is Vajri juve <laughs> i don't hear no no you're talking about the one where you can become a virgin again right yeah like rebuild your cherry i don't know what yeah. the fuck it's called but yeah <laughs> but yeah the vaginal rejuvenation is more about tightening it but interesting so i wonder it's interesting because even in pop culture if you compare the u.s to most of asia really or or the west to the east it, you had movies like american pie or in most pop culture in the west sex is something that celebrated right like oh i just did it with this person whereas 
if you look at Vietnamese films, even from five years ago, or even even very recently, they have scenes where people like are having sex. So they go to kiss and then the camera like slowly rolls to the window <laughs> and it's just come on guys we all know what happens it's okay but it's there's still very much shame about it right there like even in that pop culture there's that underlying message that it is shameful to engage in sexual intercourse yeah it i don't know i think i guess i'm a messiah for spreading free sexual thoughts i feel like a hippie now Yeah, and I agree with you, but I think it is important to talk about sex. So anyway, were you able to bring anyone home growing up? Did you ever have a date come home when you were growing up? I wasn't like super... I know, okay, I'm going to lie. No, I was about to lie. (laughs) My mom listens to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, no, okay. So what I was going to say was uh, I wasn't sexual as a kid, but that's a lie, right? That was the lie I was going to tell. No, I was sexual as a kid. But I didn't really have too much luck with the ladies, I would say. I was a late bloomer, I would say, because my friends would talk about sex when we're like 12, 13 years old. It's like, oh, I just on her back. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, you're 12. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, what, what? What did you do? How did you do that? Right? That's not a good thing. So, of course, we knew about it and people were having sex around. I had a few girlfriends and stuff, but it wasn't, it never got to that point. It was like... It was all very tame, second, third base type stuff. So I we never did it in their house or, or my house, but I wouldn't really bring friends home anyway. I think my house was a bit weird. Like I kept that separate from my friends. I would go to their house, but mm. I don't even think my parents really liked people coming to my house. It was like one of those sacred places that they were just like, yeah, go to theirs, don't come here. And also they're like Asian OCD parents. So they're just like, whatever. But no, I never had that. And the first girl I brought home was actually my first girlfriend. Uh, and I was 19. And that was fine. We slept in the same room. My parents are quite free with that kind of stuff. Funny story is because her parents or her mum is, you know, really religious. She wanted us to sleep in different rooms mm-hmm. when I went round. And then we we're like, no, we're going to sleep in the same room. That's what she said. My ex back then. And she was like, okay, let me pull up a mattress. And so she set up a mattress uh, next to her bed. And we're like, yeah, okay, yeah, this works. And then obviously... Yeah, uh, it was for her peace of mind, wasn't it? Like she knew it was not going to be used. But yeah, I still think 19 was a super early age for you to be able to do that. At least like my home was like we... My parents were so conservative. My sister, I remember she brought her first boyfriend home uh, when she was 21. They had been dating since she was 17. So it's been a couple of good years. But even then, when she moved out and she was in uni, she rented an apartment under his apartment so that they could live together. But there was still like a space that was rented so my parents would not uh, know that they lived together. I hope my parents don't listen to this because then I've just outed my sister. Oops, sorry, Laura. Um, (laughs) Um... But I remember even now, like back when my ex and I had gone to Poland to visit my parents, it was a bit weird. Like my parents were not entirely like about us sharing a room. That was a bit like for them. They're fine, but they were not exactly happy. But that obviously like now that's fine because I've, I've 
talked enough about stuff to them that they're better, they've improved. But I remember when I was 15, I think, we had a house party. So my sister's three years older. So I was like, she's 18, we can have a house party. So we had a, a little house party. And the only way we were allowed to have a house party was that our nanny had to be there. How lame is that? Oh my god! You had a Asian. nanny? Wait, you had a nanny? Holy I had, shit! I had so many nannies. You don't even know. Oh, this is a whole other subject. My parents were working so much, but yeah. So our nanny had to be there. <laughs> fun, fun, fun. But that did not stop me from pursuing this boy that I liked in in high school. Tell us what happened. Tell us what you did. Did you blow him like in one of the toilets? Oh, no. What, what? No, 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 never. Nothing like that. No, I was very coy back then, was I? But Atsuo, Japanese guy that I liked from sixth form. Yeah, it was his last year. Basically, they were going to leave. He was leaving school that summer. And and we shared a kiss in the hallway outside of our, our, our apartment. And I got caught. In mid-kiss, the nanny opens the door and I hear the door you know like you know when bad stuff happens and you like can see it and feel it and sense it in slow motion I could hear the door handle was open was opening and we had we were in this beautiful like building like pre-war building so it was like very old uh wooden massive doors so you could hear them open and I was like still in the moment eyes closed you know kissing and uh (laughs) and you know I was like don't open your eyes because when you open your eyes it is going to be your nanny. Like I knew it. I felt it. You know, my spidey senses were tingling. Uh, and of course, I opened my eyes and it's my nanny and I was grounded. And oh my God, it was yelled at. Uh, it was like a massive thing. My parents were very unhappy. Very unhappy. Was it, was it a closed mouth kiss or was it tongue action? It was like minimal tongue action. I was very silly back then. Yeah. <laughs> you still got a crush on him, don't you? You still got a crush. Look I at your face. Oh. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I just, I'm laughing at how silly I was. I don't even know why I like this guy. Like, didn't even speak. Just slept in class. He slept so much in class that, like, him and his brother used to wear, like, band aids on their fingers because they used to game so much. Yes. Absolute geekery. Um, always was attracted to that kind of thing. I don't know why. Anyway, so that was my home. It was very, yeah, even that moment was something that was like my parents were so disappointed in me, just completely disappointed that they couldn't believe I would have done something so atrocious. Yeah, I want to add something because you just reminded me I wasn't as active when I lived at home and I moved out at 18, 19 for uni. But actually, my sister, she stayed at, at home for a, a bit longer because she went to the local college and she mm. did her art foundation. But she actually had numerous boyfriends that she brought home when I was younger. And I don't know if my parents like cared. They definitely probably mm. did, but she did it anyway. So she was very brave. And she had like quite a few boyfriends when I was growing up and they would always, she would always bring them home. I actually heard them a few times and I was like, what the oh, fuck, no. man? Got my skateboard and just ran out, right? And I was like, oh, this is, oh, this is nasty. But so I think when I brought my girlfriend home, it was like, oh, that's fine. It's the first girl you brought home. But she would bring home dudes. Yeah, man. Mm. My sister's fucking radical. She didn't give a wow. fuck. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. No. I, that's, wow. It's out there for sure. I had very elaborate plans to like even be able to go out 
on dates. God. But okay, cool. This brings me to a subject that I've been wanting to talk about because I had this crush on an Asian guy and I also dated Asian guys back when, but I, I no longer date Asian guys. So I want to talk about how other races don't find Asian guys attractive. And I know we've talked about this uh, before offline. So I do want to yeah, hear more about it and have our listeners hear your perspective. Okay. Whoa, no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> we'll go back to me. We'll go back to me. Don't worry. We'll come back. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, like, like I have to start with a question. I, there's, there's no way we can talk about this subject without me fucking asking this question. Oh, no. Why the hell do you not date Asian guys? <laughs> I promise. What's wrong with you? All of our Asian listeners, all of our Asian male listeners, I'm not an Asian guy hater. There's a lot of different reasons for why I'm not doing it. Let's fucking hear some of them right now. (laughs) I say this as my extremely white boyfriend is probably going to listen to this episode. Um, Okay. Yes. I don't think it started off as a conscious choice because I did date Asian guys. I dated Vietnamese guys. I dated a guy from Hong Kong, I dated a guy from Korea, clearly had a massive crush on Atsu who was Japanese. There was Asian guys before. But I think the major thing for me was cultural differences. Like even when you meet a Vietnamese guy, that's a Viet Kiel, right? So a Vietnamese guy from abroad, and he's been brought up in a Western culture, when they return to Vietnam and see how good they have it if they're just a Vietnamese guy, all the stuff that they've learned, all the things that they've sponged up being abroad just goes out the window. And they're like, and they want you to be a stay-at-home mom. They want you to be this submissive Asian girl. And I, I'm i just not that person. Like, I'm, you know, literally this podcast is called Ranting Bananas because the two of us are just so white on the inside. You know, there's no denying it. There's no, I, I just can't. And, and I think I tried. For some time, I even played with that idea. For some time, that submissive, submissiveness was even like sexy to me because it touched upon a lot of like my traumas from childhood. Like in a way, it was like daddy issues. But like the more you grow, the more you're, you learn to love yourself, the more you're like, hell to the note with this like this I'm not interested and so I think that was the biggest thing for me I'm not saying that maybe I wouldn't have met an Asian guy that isn't necessarily like that but at some point that just became every guy that I had met just was like that so I was like I'm not really interested in that anymore and then there's Another aspect of it, which is the expectation that the family has. And I think when you get into a relationship and when you you want it to be serious, and most of my relationships, I've wanted them to be serious, you're really looking at the family as well. And I've done the the conservative Vietnamese Asian family. And I, I yeah, just don't want to do that again. Like, you, I've got that. Give me the other side. Give me the excitement of a liberal white family that talks about controversial topics at the dining table <laughs> whatever yeah give me the family that does christmas right exactly. christmas is still awesome with like rituals and celebrations and people are getting drunk at the dinner table and it's all laughs yeah yeah, yeah. i i see what you mean okay i hate you less <laughs> for all my asian brothers for all my asian brothers what i want really is a woman to shut the fuck up 
be less opinionated and just make me some fucking instant ramen. People that can't see us as we record our videos as well during the podcast, I had been shaking my head in a lot of disapproval as Chris was saying this. Chris does not mean that. He loves opinionated no, people. Women. I do, I do. It's sick. It's sick. I've got a disease. That's why I moved to Asia, so it could cure me. Um, but no, you okay, do date so... Asian girls, but you've dated non-Asian girls as well. So let's talk about, okay, let's go back to my original question about other races that don't find Asian guys attractive. All right. Okay. Other races that don't find Asian men attractive. I think it's actually, what do you call it? It's built into the system. Systemic desexualization of Asian men. I think that's what it is. Like, apart from Asian porn, which was very much like a niche when it first started, mm -hmm. you see like no interracial Asian male porn stars. Okay, that's one of the ways that mm -hmm. you're just not there. But also the way the media portrays Asian men in general, like they don't get lead roles, they're, they're not sex symbols. So if you're constantly consuming media like we are and, and where we grew up and you just saw like the Asian person being a stereotype that's the only ever way you could see that person that they don't have any depth it's just this chinky with a fucked up accent and squinty eyes and and being emasculated constantly mm. in the media okay if I ask you think of an Asian famous person who do you think of Asian man famous just give me a few names that guy from the hangover <laughs> Fucking okay. oh god, Mr. Chow when he does the wanking and jizzing. Oh, I love that guy. I'm sorry. Okay. No, okay, okay. Sherry Cola, she's cool. Uh, you know. No, no, girls. Asian, Asian no. male. Okay, Asian, Asian male. males. Yeah. Okay, there was a guy back in the day that was interracial as well as you say. He was mixed. He was Korean American, I think, but I can't remember his name. He was very sexy though. But yeah, I know what you mean. And I think recently there's been that guy from Crazy Rich Asians. And that was the first film that had a fully Asian cast as well, which finally, Jesus. But that, and I don't remember his name. This is terrible. This is, oh my God, I'm failing my Asian test. But he's cute. I just, right. but I look at him and I, all I can see is my future mother-in-law, which would be his very disapproving Asian mother. And I'm automatically like, no, just not interested. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but like growing up, mm -hmm. like in a very white school, I think I was probably one of the only person that was of any other ethnicity. The standard thing is they would say, my school wasn't actually that racist, but the standard thing that you would hear is if you're an Asian male, the comparison is like Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan or Jet yeah. Li, right? Those are the, the only, and they are cool. Oh, so cool. here are three Asian stereotypes Asian men stereotypes. One is the Kung Fu master, right? You're Bruce Lee, you're Jackie Chan, you're Jet Li. Mm -hmm. The second stereotype is we have small penises, right? And the third is you're a geek. Like you're good at math, science and computers. Mm -hmm. And that's not that sexy if you think about it. A Kung Fu master, sure. Mm -hmm. Bruce Lee was a, a huge sex symbol and mm -hmm. he was like the James Bond in his movies. But it's interesting. So in the 20s, when there was a huge immigration of Asian people or Chinese specifically, mm -hmm. into the US, mm -hmm. there was articles about like Asian men raping white ladies. And that's just not true. And they called it the yellow peril, that they wow. portrayed Asian men in a very dangerous, like mad men sort of characters. And you can see these posters online, and I'll share it with you. Basically, US was trying to protect that population. And they like, 
to not have Asians integrate with the wider society because they're there for specific roles and stuff. So it's not by accident. And everybody mentions this when you talk about Asians being underrepresented in media and films. Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, Mickey Rooney playing the Asian Mm -hmm. smiley Japanese man. Tom Cruise being the white savior in The Last Samurai. So it plays such a big role of our expectations of certain groups of people. So shows like Fresh Off the Boat and movies like Crazy Rich Asians are now coming out and we are getting a more accurate representation of ourselves. Actors are no longer having to do Asian accents when they're on screen and stuff like People like John Cho, I don't know if John Cho, he was in American Pie, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. He's the he's the guy that said, MILF, but he's like a sex symbol, this Korean-American. And if you think of Asians, like women are fantasized about, is this exotic sexual being. And then men are more like emasculated, that with like quiet, nerdy types that don't stand up for ourselves. And I think that narrative is changing. But I think that's also why a lot of races don't find Asians attractive. I think this generation growing up, will have a different outlook because of the internet and because also most of the YouTube stars are fucking Asian anyway, right? <laughs> like we, we, we have represented it so badly on the internet that it's fucking sick, but the narrative is changing. Mm-hmm. However, it hasn't always been like that. And I think Asian men, like for my dad's generation, definitely struggled in the US and in, in other places that, yeah, that just didn't have fair representation and I get it I get it yeah and I think I think there's like you said there's this huge difference right between how men Asian men and how Asian women are seen because Asian men a are underrepresented so other races are not really that attracted to them because they're just not seen right what what you get used to is how you also process and imagine things the more we see the more we see asian people out there and in the media and in pop culture the more i think that will change but then you've got the over fetishizing of asian women so i remember very distinctly how There was a moment growing up as an Asian girl, as an Asian kid in the early 90s in Poland, there was so much racism. There was so much intolerance. There was so much. I used to get bullied all the time. People on the street would say horrible things to me. I got spat on. It was really horrible. And there was, we were growing up in a big city, uh, Krakow, which had loads of tourists as well. So you'd see Asian tourists all the time, but not many really foreigners living there yet at that time. So I remember a moment of change when I started going through puberty. So I got boobs and I got curves. And suddenly the whole narrative changed from, hey, Ching Chong, go back to where you came from, to suddenly being like, hey, check out this Oriental girl. I remember it like so well. Like my, I have physical memory of it. Like my body remembers that change where suddenly people staring at me was not with hate it was with something that's against lust which was also very disgusting in many ways because you're made into this it's more of a symbol it's more of a what they think of you outside of who you even are so there's that whole aspect there and thank god more foreigners came to live in Krakow and being in in an international school definitely helped because being around kids that had exposure that was very different than just constantly being exposed to for example polish 
culture and how they just weren't used to seeing foreign people. But yeah, there's that whole aspect there. So that brings me to the subject of fantasies because people have so many different fantasies and Asian girl fantasy is definitely one of them. But I had pulled up some statistics for us and and this is from the University of Montreal. So Canadians, unfortunately, it's like 1,500 adults residing in Quebec had filled out surveys about their sexual fantasies. So I pulled that up for us so that we could look into some of the statistics. Obviously, this can't be generalized for everyone everywhere in the world, but I think it gives a pretty cool idea on what fantasies people have. And the top one, I think that we see for both men and women, which is which was for me very surprising, is... Uh, a statement was, I like to feel romantic emotions during a sexual relationship. And that's 92% for women and 88.3% for men. And I found that really surprising for some reason. And I don't know if I'm like cynical or, but for some reason, I thought the first fantasy would have been much dirtier. Yeah. I mean, that makes me sick. <laughs> like, or is it because it's Canadian? <laughs> They're just like really mushy inside, yeah. like because it's so cold up there. They're just like, oh, I just want to be romantic, man. <laughs> Fuck. Very surprising statistic. Okay, there's like having sex in an unusual place, right? That that makes sense. And fellatio cunnilingus makes sense. Oh, public toilets though. <laughs> oh wait, there's pu- oh ew, no, no, in an unusual place. Yeah, in the office, but like oh, public no. toilets. That's raw, right? It depends. Yeah. Is it a McDonald's toilet or is it like some nice? fucking hotel toilet okay yeah i see that i see that distinction does make sense to me yeah or or like a spa a nice five-star spa <laughs> yeah something like, like that i mean that kind of toilet's fine <laughs> oh look and and quite high up as well being masturbated by my partner 71 percent for both that's pretty high okay having sex with a prostitute or stripper 12 percent for women 39.5 percent for men Wow. Wow. I go on, I go on, I go on. Oh, shit. I fantasized about having sex with an unknown person. Women, 48%. Men, 72%. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. So, like, the discrepancies between, like... Quite big. Do I want to fuck someone I don't know? Women are like, nah, I don't want to, really. Like, half and (laughs) half. Men are like, fuck yeah, of course I do. Okay, check this one out, though. Fantasize about having a sexual relationship with a woman with very small breasts. 10% for women, 52.3% for men. Small-breasted women out there, it is fine. Power to the people. Power <laughs> to the fucking people. And also, like, I don't have boobs, and I sometimes I make jokes about wanting to have bigger boobs, but honestly, sleeping is so much better on your stomach when you don't have boobs in the way. So whatever. Let's see. Ejaculating on my sexual partner for men only. 80%, of course. Um, (laughs) I like how you're just like, you could hear uh, Ola rolling her eyes. Of course. (laughs) Interracial sex. Oh, yeah. 27%. 27% for women. 61% for men. Wow. Very big discrepancy there. Uh, I... Fucking hell, women are racist, aren't they? Okay. (laughs) I I have fantasized about sexually abusing a person who is drunk, asleep, or unconscious. 10% for women, 22.6% for men. Shit. I think that should be higher. I think men higher. Men are just lying. I don't believe that statistic. They're lying. Yeah, I think they're bullshitting. Yeah. Okay, but just speaking about being asleep or unconscious. So 
That's actually one of my fantasies. <laughs> Not about being abused, just that I'm asleep and then my partner just comes in and pulls the cover off and just does things. And I think that's very much rooted in my in my relationship with control because I, I'm so in control of things on a daily basis with work, with my personal life. Like everything has to be sorted, organized, and I'm very much in control. So I think that fantasy for me comes from from like wanting to let go of control and having someone else be in control. Funny story. <laughs> I did ask for permission to share this before this podcast last Thursday, a week ago, guys. My boyfriend was going to come over late at night because he was working, making stuff. So he's like, I'm going to be late over late. And I was like, yes, just drive over. You can sleep here. And and we were joking. We were like texting and joking, being like, ooh, what if like you arrive? And there's like candles everywhere and I'm asleep. And then make sure you wash your hands. And then you come upstairs and... <laughs> you know, the fantasy ensues and, and whatnot. So it was a joke, but clearly we were both turned on by it. So Thursday comes around and this one, of course, decides, great idea. <laughs> Let me light candles and just turn off all the lights, leave the door open and, and then just be in bed when he comes in and pretend to sleep. The thing is, first of all, you have to, <laughs> I had to open the door, like the intercom one so so i had to like open the door like press the intercom and then run upstairs really quickly get into it <laughs> um that's so the- lame that's so lame oh my god you're just like oh my god i gotta get in bed i gotta pretend oh my god logistic I'm very, issues i'm very embarrassed talking about this so i get into bed and i'm still like trying to catch my fucking breath because it's like I had to run upstairs. So I'm like trying to calm my breath and like I'm covered because I'm like, I'm going to laugh so hard. Um, I, hear, I hear the door open and he's as cute as most innocent person just comes in and looks around. He's like, oh, this is cozy. <laughs> and I'm like, do not laugh. Do not laugh. Keep sex like this atmosphere is sexy. But like clearly, like coming up, he could hear me like just you know, like under the bed, like under the cover, trying to not laugh and be sexy. But I couldn't, like, I couldn't even hold it in. The minute he like I could hear him coming to the bed, I just pull the covers over and just start outright laughing. And we just had the hardest laugh ever. First of all, very embarrassing story. But I think that kind of highlights what what fantasies are versus what reality is because I think so often we have these like elaborate fantasies about what we're going to do and stuff like that but to go from a fantasy to actually be being able to reenact it and keep your face straight and do it I think it's really hard and if you don't have a certain level of intimacy with someone where you can actually laugh about it laugh super hard about it and then still get it on which we did, and it was amazing. I think it's really hard, right? So a lot of people end up having fantasies and never talking about it, never trying them, never even discussing it with their partners. Yeah, there's nothing to be embarrassed about, Ola, really. It's a cute story, and I said you're lame because you are lame, and you already know that, and and that's, yeah. But no, that's really cute and pretty funny. I really like that. That's, uh, That's awesome. That's awesome that you guys had a kick out of it, yeah. Speaking about fantasies, right? I'll tell you a story that's not my fantasy, but somehow it happened to me. So casual Friday night, a couple of boys, three of us actually at the pub drinking. We went to a British pub because why not? 
So mm. we sink some pints. About five later, someone's like, oh, where do you want to go? I'm, I don't know. Let's just like walk around, pick a spot. We're like, oh, let's go somewhere a bit more lively. Then someone introduces or suggests a place like, oh, there's this really famous S&M club in Bangkok. It's like really famous, wow. really popular. So in my mind, the expectation was, oh, it's like one of these places where you go for a show and, you know, and you don't have to get involved or whatever, right? You just go to drink and watch people, I don't know, get abused or whatever it is and dress up in all sorts of fancy clothing. So we go in and it's quite secretive. It's like you knock and someone asks you, blah, blah, blah. You have to pay an entrance. So we go in there completely dead. And this was, mm. I would say, in the summer. So uh, lockdown had probably just finished or something. So streets are dead. The club or the bar itself is dead. Dark and dingy mm. and walk in. And so these girls come up to us like in their lingerie and like immediately, like in this booth that we're sitting in, quite a large booth, like someone gets strapped to this cross and then the candles are coming out and then there's the paddle thing and she's getting hit on her butt and holy fuck like what did i just walk into like expectations Whoa. yeah and then and then they start getting all sorts of gadgets out and they're like showing us like oh you can have sex on this thing that you strap someone down to do you want to do that and i was like not really not at the moment i'm not that drunk so of course we start drinking in there and one thing leads to another and basically all the dudes are naked at this time. The guys I was with and the girls are just doing whatever. And I saw, oh fuck, I saw one of my ex-colleagues get strapped to this thing backwards. No. And like, there was two girls, like one like giving him a blowjob and the other just giving him some fucking pain on the ass. And I was like, bro, you got to shave that ass, man. It's hairy as fuck. <laughs> right. So that was my first like S&M experience. I, I would say that I didn't enjoy any of the pain. I'm not about the pain life. Wait, hold hold up. Yeah. You were the one giving the pain or receiving the pain? I tried both and I didn't really like it. I didn't really like either. Because it's a bit different because you, when you have these gadgets and stuff, I think it's way more pain. Like the whip, mm. of course, mm. is a dangerous one. I didn't even want to do it. Like I was like, oh, fuck like, like <laughs> trying to tickle them with it yeah <laughs> i just like oh I yeah i just didn't really like doing that and, and receiving it is probably just as worse you're like okay well i can handle this but it doesn't give me any pleasure it's not mm. like training for martial arts where it's pain but you like you like the pain yeah you like it punch in the face it's, it's very different so that was my first snm experience yeah it was weird but it was weird spanking's good though right yeah, spanking's fine. Yeah, spanking's fine. But everyone when you're using... Yeah, everyone likes a little... Or even in the face, just a little bit. Like, that's okay, right? But that was a different level. But anyway, yes. Okay, so that was so my that, story. That was not your fantasy, though. S&M was not... It's not a fantasy for you. So I, I obviously had just shared a very embarrassing story about a fantasy of mine. So what's your... What would you say is your, like, your top fantasy? I'm pretty boring, to be honest, actually. Contrary to popular belief, I'm pretty boring. And Everyone believes that. Everyone knows you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm a weirdo, right? Yeah, a proper weirdo. Basically, my fantasy is every everybody's fantasy, which mm -hmm. is most heterosexual male's fantasy, which is to have a threesome with two girls. That, like, pretty fucking run-of-the-mill. Mm -hmm. So I had thought about it, and it, it definitely, I think, was a fantasy. But now I'm realizing that it will just be a logistical nightmare unless basically you paid for it. If you paid for it and they were there for a re or they 
both really digged you and they didn't dig each other, Mm -hmm. that would be the only way that would work. Otherwise, it would just be this like, okay, like now you need some attention. Now you need some attention. How like, but if you don't have to worry about giving people attention and you're Mm -hmm. just receiving and you're doing whatever you want, that would be the only, I I guess, way to do it. But I'm not, I I still don't think that's a, a thing that I think I've grown out of that. But when I was younger, it definitely was a fantasy. And was it a fantasy that it was just any two girls? Or were you thinking, oh, my girlfriend and then someone else? And then would you ever approach that subject as well with your girlfriend? Yeah, I basically asked every girl I've ever been with that question. <laughs> just throw it out there, right? Just because someone would say yes one day and I'll be like, okay, well, am I really going to do this? But it's never happened. <laughs> That's a good question because I think you shouldn't do it with your girlfriend just because uh, there's a chance that you'll be more into the other girl because you'll already know your girlfriend, right? Mm-hmm. So is there another person there that could be more interested? So then like you don't want to put that kind of energy in the room when things are getting a bit naughty and then like afterwards you end up fucking having a fight or something. So I would never want to put someone I like too much in that. It would be better if you know them the same amount and hopefully that's not that much, like a couple of dates and then that's fine but anyone with emotional connection don't put them through that shit yeah i I think there's definitely some dangers and risks to it but what if what if like your uh partner agrees and says okay we can have a threesome per se but the girl that joins us can only interact with me and not with you yeah i'll be down i'll be down (laughs) there we go there you go i solved your problem for you Uh, okay i would be down but it wouldn't be as fun as it wouldn't be my fantasy right like it's expectation versus reality yet again like if that's the reality that's fine but it's not like what i'm thinking when i thought about having a threesome like why it's attractive is because you're the center of attention that's and yeah. you're you're the person that's just receiving all the pleasure without having to do anything or whatever that's yeah i guess that's a thing that makes sense that makes sense all right another what another fantasy that comes up quite often is anal right i think for a lot of people and and i think it's always a subject that i think no one wants to talk about in a way so unless you're in a gay relationship where that's obvious and even then i'm sure there's like who gets to be top who gets to be bottom i'm sure there's the their their own complications can arise there but it's i i always feel like anal's that kind of subject that a lot of couples probably both people are thinking about it and then neither wants to bring it up because they're scared of what like maybe being judged maybe the other person doesn't want to do it maybe so the question is chris have you done it <laughs> wow that was direct I have not done it, and I don't really feel that turned on by it. Mm. Of course, I've been drunk and stuck in a finger in, and like, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, this is like, what is this? And, and I think it was just because I was drunk and a bit curious, but I've definitely had the opportunity, but I've just never really been like, oh, yeah, that's exciting. But I get why it's exciting. And hear me out and disagree mm-hmm, mm-hmm, if you... Mm-hmm. Okay, so having sex for the purpose of uh, procreation. That's typically how animals do it. Not many animals have sex for pleasure, as you mentioned. There's the goal, and that's the only goal I'm going to score. But if you're doing anal, it's interesting because you're almost going against the evolutionary mm-hmm. side of, of your brain, right? Like the biology. So it's like this forbidden place, and it's almost like 
dirty but that's why it's also so attractive because you're not mm-hmm. like you're not supposed to allow to do it so this is like forbidden fruit and that's why i think people fantasize it so much yeah. but they don't talk about it but then some people are like not willing to even try it because it, it's this whole like against quote-unquote evolution or, or mm-hmm. of our biology or whatever because it's not yeah it's not uh, part of the procreation cycle or whatever so i think it's interesting but i'm yeah just not personally into it so two things. What about you? Okay. Yeah, Wait, so two things, because anal is probably the kind of sex that most Catholic school kids engage in, right? Or, or kids from families where they're told over and over again, like you can't have sex uh, until marriage. And if you're religious, whatever, that's the kind of sex that those kids, that the kids would engage in and be like, it's not really sex because we're not really, are we really, I, I love that justification. And the second thing is a very interesting thing that I had found out about anal orgasms is that there's a a nerve in there called the pudendal nerve, and it's connected to the clitoris for women. And the pudendal nerve um, carries sensation basically to and from uh, your perineum and at the perineum, where is the perineum? It's it's the area between like your anus and your vulva. So it's if you looked... If this was your, if you're looking at a, at an image of a woman, I guess, like with her legs spread, then like above is her, her vulva and, and vagina. And then like underneath you have the anus. So the area between those two, that's the perineum. So anyway, so the, this, that nerve carries the sensation to and from the perineum and then reaches all the way into your uh, vagina and anus. So then if you can achieve anal orgasms, they're very intense. So, you know, Chris, you could be bringing a lot of pleasure if one day you so decide. (laughs) What sort of routine do you have to go through to make sure everything is all fucking cleared out? Make sure she's not backed up and like, what's the preparation and process to go through that? Because that's probably also one of people's nightmares, right? Because everybody's heard about some like shit story. So how does it work? Give me the fucking breakdown. Good question. So I don't actually know. I don't know what the prep work is. I can guess that what would be. I feel like we should consult some of our anal experts on this. But I, I don't know. And I I can say from my own experience that there's not really been prep. I don't, I've not had, you know, it was very recent that it's it was like a, the first kind of real experience for me where... Was it pleasurable? Where first real experience where it was pleasurable. That's, yeah, because before it would be like, oh, let's try. And then it's like, oh, no, I don't like it. Let's stop. So, yeah, it was very natural. It just happened and it was it was very natural. And, yeah, not going to say Good more. stuff. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I think I would be more confident in doing it if I knew what I was doing. Yeah. That makes sense. If it was like, if that person enjoyed it and could walk me through the process, I wouldn't mind because... Uh, yeah, a lot of times it's not that pleasurable. And I think mm. that's the most kind of feedback that I've mm. heard where it's like, yeah, I mean, I did it because he wanted to do it, not that it was pleasurable. So I'm yeah. just like, well, no, okay, well, was, let's not do that then, right? Yeah. It's definitely like now one of my top five experiences, I think. I guess I, like, I saw the difference between it being done and it being just done. And oh, I'm not feeling it. Let's, yeah. So definitely, yeah. Hells to the, yeah. <laughs> But okay, anyways, so I think we're about to uh, run out of time as well, but we've touched upon a lot of different things. And so I'd like to close out on talking about what does sex really mean for you and what do you want out of it? Great question. 
on the surface, of course, sex is pleasurable and it's almost the perfect ending to a night out. And on a deeper level, maybe not even on the deeper level, but on another level, sex and love can be two separate things, I feel, in my opinion. And sex does get better once you have a lot of it with one person. It, it, it almost, because you know each other better and you're more comfortable to try stuff, etc. But for me, it's almost one of the filters of compatibility. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a good relationship without that sexual component. And it, it's not just about the physical act. It's also about the lead up to it and how you speak about it and uh, that tension or th- that chemistry. It's a part of that. But yeah, it could be something very casual. It could be something deeper. For me, it plays a huge role in general. And I think actually I probably spend too much time thinking about sex, which is uh, not a good thing to say, right? But that's just the way my brain works. If you don't have any follow-up questions... How do you feel or like what does sex mean for you? Yeah, just going back to real quick to what you were saying about thinking about sex all the time, which might not be a good thing. Why isn't it a good thing? That's basically evolution itself is all about reproduction, right? Like we all think about all the animals constantly are wired to think about sex, right? Like we, our lives revolve around that about, about our, our species surviving in a way. So you know what? Embrace it. It's fine. Yeah, I think... It is fine, right? It is fine. However, here's my devil's advocate or or here's my comeback, which is when you're single and you think about sex all the time, you tend to do something about it, Mm -hmm. right? You tend to go out your way, speak to lots of people, da-da-da-da-da. Like you're like actively looking for another sexual Mm -hmm. partner. So then you spend way more time than if you're in a relationship that is easily accessible. Even if you think about it a lot, you Mm -hmm. could get it. And then not think about it for a while. So as a person that's single that thinks about sex a lot, you spend a lot of time on it. And I think that's why I'm like, maybe I'm spending too much time (laughs) pursuing things that are just for pleasure's sake, because that's what I want at the moment. I I think that's probably why I I feel bad that I'm wasting a lot of time on it. And whether or not I'm going to do something about it, it's fine. Like, it's just me being me, just being like weird. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so for me, I think think that's... That's also the difference between you and I, like which we had mentioned about about this in the relationship episode, right? I'm very much of a relationship person. So I think for me, sex is very much connected to intimacy. And it was only very recently that I had been able to explore sexuality and my own sexuality and take back the power over my own body and just being like, I get to enjoy myself and and just do that with no strings attached. And, and it was a very short period of just sexual freedom, which I call the pussy power movement. But sex for me usually is very much connected to intimacy and closeness. And like, to me, it means a delivery of sorts, right? Like that I am delivering myself to you and you're delivering yourself to me. And we share in that intimate moment together. But there's an interesting, there's an interesting theory that Esther Perel has, which I, you know, which I mentioned earlier about erotic intelligence, but her, she wrote a book called Mating and Captivity, uh, Unlocking Erotic Intelligence. And it talks about reconciling the closeness needed for intimacy. So all that everyday time spent together, learning the little things about every, about one another, every little detail and like what your thoughts are, what your feelings are, etc. And then 
that with the psychological distance that's needed, that fuels desire. So like you need a bit of distance and space for sexual exploration and excitement, right? Like not knowing maybe every single detail of the other person's life. Like even if you live together, like having enough of that je ne sais quoi, you know, like a little bit of mystery so that you can explore, right? Because I think there's a line where where when there's too much closeness and two people become one and they don't have their own separate lives and they lose their own like identity, you end up, there's it's hard to have sex because are you just then masturbating, right? Because it's your one person. So there's it's a really interesting uh, book. But anyway, we can talk about it more on our next podcast. But I feel like we've explored enough today. We ventured into dark corners of the human mind and, and sexual pleasures. Yeah, exactly. So the next episode, we'll be talking about the future of work, building a better workplace in a time of utter Zoom chaos. So maybe some subjects that we'll talk about in terms of the future of work is what does work look like without an office? Or can you reimagine what the perfect workplace would be now that we've adopted more digital way of communicating and freelancing is obviously very popular is that how companies are going to be structured what are companies going to spend their money on now that they don't need an office anymore is that more like equipment are there more things like sponsoring your gym membership or just lots of interesting shifts that we see in the workplace that we've been luckily exposed to because we work in the technology industry and we've embraced all these tools but not every company has done that but with coronavirus the the mindset of work has definitely shifted and i think it'll just be a really interesting episode where we can talk everything about work and what's actually happening right now and then how we see it in the future anything to add ola yeah, yeah. And I think it's just we've already seen shifts this year, right, with so many companies going to be a remote first kind of uh, workplace where people can work from home if they want to and then only come into the office when they want to. So a lot of big companies had already done that. Loads of companies are moving out of Silicon Valley, all of that stuff. So it's really interesting to look at the industries at a lot of workplaces as a general, but then also drill into with our little looking glass and trying to figure out what does that really mean in a workplace and how can you design a workplace that that lives with all these challenges that we have, but is still a place where you want to be and that keeps you happy. So, so I think that's what we're going to try and figure out next time. All right. Tune in next time, motherfuckers.